Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Everything needs a story. People enjoy stories. People love to be entertained. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. All right, solar warriors, welcome back. Welcome back to episode 42 of Suncast. And this is episode three of our Solar Pioneer series and part two of the last episode that we left you with in this series with Corey Vaughn. Now, the folks in this series have indeed been pioneers of business models and companies contributing to what might be called the modern solar PV growth era, beginning mid-90s and into the 2000s, growing some of today's most iconic businesses. Now, Corey was one of those in the inner circle as the industry began to really take form through the 90s to become what we presently enjoy as a budding industry that is kind of growing into maturity. We are all truly standing on the shoulders of giants, and it would be nearly impossible to capture all the voices of all those who were visionaries and even martyrs in lifting solar out of obscurity into the mainstream. But I'm so grateful for Corey and Dan and those that are to come in this series as we bring to you a series called Solar Pioneers. Now, if you missed the previous episode, episode 40, please do take some time to go back, have a listen to that, and hear how it all started for Corey how his good fortune of being in the early team of some of the industry's fastest-growing companies gave him a front-row seat to the way this industry became what it is today. And he was a leader in some of these behemoths as they grew. Now, in today's episode, we get into detail about the truth about Sun Edison's rooftop leasing practices and whether it created an advantage for Sun Edison, how they set up regulatory affairs and other inside information to get upcoming market development data that put them ahead of their peers. How Sun Edison seemed to always be ahead of the cost curve on solar project pricing, and what it was really like to ride the rise and fall of the MEMC acquisition and subsequent company explosion, if you will, good and bad. We look at Corey's vision for financing and storage solutions that will help the CNI market. We go through hot or not, from distributed generation to SaaS for solar to grid stabilization. And Corey's advice to developers from his own lessons learned and what he'd do differently if he could start all over at Sun Edison again. You know, Corey really does dole out some advice here and insight in this follow-on episode gleaning from his 20-plus years of experience in selling solar. And it was so much fun to do this episode with him. Now, since recording, Corey has merged. Some of you may have noticed on the interwebs that he has merged his consulting practice, CRV, with Lamb Energy to become the executive vice president for the well-known EPC down in Southern California, who has been delivering these energy services and one of the biggest solar EPCs 
uh, for 26 years with Scott and Beverly Bailey down there. I want to wish him well in that venture and thank him again for being a part of this. And in honor of this part two episode, I went ahead and dug up a video he had referenced where he was captured in a documentary of sorts when he was a manager at BP Solar from 1998. Now, I'll be sure to link to this video in the show notes over at mysuncast.com. It is a must-see if you've known Corey or met him personally to see him uh, as a youngin when he was just getting into the solar industry. Now, as always, remember, if you have someone or something that you think should be on Suncast, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or even pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your phone. That website is www.mysuncast.com, and you can email me, nico, at mysuncast.com. And one last thing, I am really so grateful for those who collaborate with Suncast every week. And this episode is brought to you again in partnership with soulrates.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. If you got projects that are commercial projects over 100000 in value and you'd like to see how Soul Rates can help you quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal for your customers, please reach out to me directly. Several of you have via LinkedIn and email. And I'll send you an invitation code to get you onto the platform. Did I mention that it's free? All right. Thanks again for being here with us. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast, continuing our Solar Pioneer series with part two from Corey Vaughn. Well, you've been a part of historic growth. A lot's changed in the last 20 years. Is there something that you believe to be true about solar now that was not true 10 years ago? Well, we know it to be true that in many markets, it's actually cheaper to have solar than it is for grid power. So that's, that's finally happened. Great point. You know, the and you, LCOE. And you guys are responsible for helping that happen. Yeah, I remember we used to give those speeches. LCOE, lowest cost of electricity. Yeah. And, um you know, it's interesting too. I just, you know, to go back, you know, where I, we we kind of towed, touted and bragged the fact that we had, you know, sold the whole state at the same rate. Well, back in the PPAs, you know, there's one thing that that Sun Edison never did, and they never really stuck those accelerators in there for yearly increases. The escalators. Escalators. Uh-huh. And the PPAs as high as a lot of the competition did. Yeah. Because those, unfortunately, some of those escalators are above grid rate right now. And so the utilities right. have pushed back and they've actually put in tariffs that discourage solar, you know, mm-hmm. or they put in, you know, time of use now where they've taken a, a, a block in the middle of the day when solar's at their prime and make that low rate, you know. So yeah. there's lots of different things you have to work around to get into, but we had to go back and at least with the projects that we had sold showing that in general you may have 10 locations out of 100 that are paying more for solar than they are for grid but in general you're making you know millions millions and millions of savings yeah. on the other there's there's two things i wanted to ask you a question about that always kind of stuck in the back of my mind you know but as someone who didn't work at sun edison but uh sort of always marveled at how you guys seem to always get uh you were a step ahead uh, it seemed there was lots of sort of backbiting and, and murmuring in the industry that Sun Edison was often pricing at unreasonably low prices. Uh, and it also, maybe we'll tie into that. Way back when you guys dominated the New Jersey market, there was this sort of rumor that Sun Edison had for months and months and months gone in 
and made these uh, these claims to building owners to basically lock up the rooftop market under lease options, right? Can you talk about some of the early thinking around pricing and around optioning the customer that helped Sun Edison win? Well, it's very interesting. You know, I think the the, the rumor that the piece, you know, on, on the um, on the real estate side of the real estate market, the uh, um, I, I never really saw those options go many places. Hmm. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, you go to a, a building owner, a REIT as an example. The REITs were the big thing. Let's go to the owners of the buildings. Right. Let's give them a cent or two per square foot for every building they own. And then we get the first right to put solar on them. Right. Well, what do REITs not want to do? They don't want to encumber their assets. There's shell corporations that own the buildings, different things. There's so many different complexities in there. And when their tenant leaves, they don't want to be stuck with the system, right? Right. So when when those big programs that may have been successful in New Jersey were basically regional high net worth folks that had buildings and real estate right. that seemed that way. The real sad part was is that the people that weren't really skilled and weren't really honest and were doing the cash sales outside of the PPAs mm-hmm. were making huge claims on what the renewable energy credit values would be over time. Mm-hmm. Right. So you went to a corporation who put the $2.5 million in for the system. They expect to be paid back in three years mm-hmm. or suddenly now 10 years and they're still not paid back because the, the, the credits – it was, it was all bogus, right? right. And, and, and a lot of the, the retail business too – you, you didn't handle any of that worry because with the with the PPA or a sale leaseback of what Sun Edison did, there was no worry to you as the host of the system. You didn't own the system. You just got cheap power. The, yeah. the investor had all the expense, had all the worries. Mm-hmm. Had So what they did is on these rec strips, the valuation of those could bring the PPA price down to win the market right. or win the place. And so that's kind of kind of where it came. Did you feel like though that you had uh, better insight into the black box? I mean, I remember, for example, we did a project in Northern California, and the sun, we were on a conference call with Sun Edison team, and they said, "What's your price for the project?" And I, I'm gonna say we said the price was something like two sixty. And you know, someone on your team said, "No, that price should probably be more like two thirty. And we said, well, what are your panel price assumptions? And the answer came back, well, the panel prices are going to be about one. This is back when they're still over a dollar. Price is going to be about 132 by the time we get this built. <laughs> and we were buying at like 180 at the time. And I just remember sitting there looking across the table at my team thinking, what do they know that we don't? <laughs> right? But I mean, little did we know you were directly in, that, you know, in conversations with MEMC. And, uh, but did you – how prevalent was this sort of sense that you guys knew more about the upstream market and that, in fact, that affected your price? Well, one thing that Sun Edison did and did it from day one is they had a regulatory affairs department. Mm-hmm. These were key lobbyists and really talented people that were in key markets, Washington, <clears throat> New Jersey, New York. Yeah. San Francisco, Sacramento, where all these these legislatures and the, the law passing and so forth and being involved in the beginning of knowing what's going on. And then we had 
this competitive intelligence division and tracking. So the regulatory affairs people would know, okay, we've talked about South Carolina mm-hmm. going online. We know from our meeting with the utility commissions and so forth that it's going to hit here. We better send Corey down now and get you know, dealers down there going and getting the people ready to go so that we in turn can hit that market first while the strike while the iron's hot. Remarkable. So they always were ahead of the game, but do I just said about the module pricing? Yeah, go for it. What what they did is that with MEMC involved, MEMC knew the cost of silicon. Remember, silicon was selling for what two hundred dollars a kilo for a period of time before it dropped into the 20 or 25, you know what I'm saying? So they did what they called a forward cost curve. Right. So they could supply the silicon and know what the price it would be, then have the manufacturer do it. And we knew what month and day and so forth it would deliver, and we knew what forward pricing would be for them. So you were able to come to us and know for a project 18 months out – the prices will be a dollar five instead of a dollar eighty, right. and that was the advantage of work because we had that advanced forward cost curve, which yeah. usually was pretty spot on. How much did you know? I mean, so you, MEMC famously acquired Sun Edison for much lower than anyone thought um, mm-hmm. back in two thousand nine. Um, how m- did you have insight before then, or was it only when you got MEMC that you guys really sort of had this key advantage on module pricing? We had, I mean, I guess you, I'll, I'll make another assumption. You were at BP for the, the 13 years before that or 10 years. So right. uh, how much of that played into, right? Like you guys sort of fundamental understanding. Well, we You're... always, before the merger um, acquisition <laughs> merger, um, we always said we were solar agnostic. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. So we're solar agnostic. We buy the best product, the right time, what's approved on the, you know, the approved list for the vendor, yeah. you know, those types of things. What is actually going to be financed and what we're going to use. It wasn't until MEMC came in and they decided they were going to start building their own modules. Mm-hmm. That's when BP shut down the factories and those guys moved over to Sun Edison because we knew them. And they came in and they built the module line and the quality. And they're still moving around now so you know right. it's just kind of crazy how it worked out but remember the chinese have very low labor rates right and so they were starting to flood the market with cheap product i remember all the lawsuits and all the stuff coming out from you know just the dumping in the u.s yeah. which was yeah but what that did is that was that helped us be able to um Build more projects and, and be bigger and better, you know. And, and yeah. we haven't even talked about the yield codes yet and, and what that did. <laughs> well, I cut in a bit on some MEMC. Was there anything that you wanted to sort of finish there? Well, with MEMC, when they came in, they um, really saved the company, believe mm-hmm. it or not. You know, it was yeah. on the, the throes of bankruptcy and they had all these assets that could um, need to be deployed. But saw so these retailers. In fact, I had ten systems on coal stores, and I had to negotiate a whole lease system and so forth just to get those going, get the money for them. But remember, you could not activate a solar system until the incentive was approved and the financing was in place, or you would lose the investment tax credit. Right. So these could not be turned on. 
So you had a solar system sitting on a store top for a year waiting to be turned on because you couldn't turn it on. Can you imagine these, these, millions re of dollars these retailers that have already taken their spend for the year and deducted their savings out of there, and now they're paying full rate for power, and they had negotiated the, the right rates for this. You know what I mean? It was just a really right. nightmare. So when MEMC came in, they they gave us non-competes. They gave us money to stick around and That's let cool. us kind of build the organization. So Yeah. We talked a little bit offline about this. You can go into the depth that you want to. As a sales guy, I remember uh, and sort of my heart went out to you guys because it seemed to me like Sun Edison – I imagine you guys had some equity in the company. It seemed to me like Sun Edison had a much higher valuation than 200 million at the time that you were sort of promised equity. How does that shift to the savior, the, you know, the knight in shining armor, affect you and your sales team and your morale if what I imagine to be the equity stake you're accounting on drops to pennies on the dollar? Well, what's interesting, <laughs> an astute, an astute player um, who's buying essentially your pipeline your backlog and your origination team mm -hmm. to keep the pull through for eventually their products, right? Um, understands the financial difficulties you're in yeah. and will take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, it was a savior, but for the founders and, and those of us that were there were actually partners in the, in the LLC. Yeah. And um, in the early days, we had to file taxes in every state that we did business. So that's just kind of funny things that we were taxed as, wow. a, as partners because it was a limited liability corporation and um, partnership. So it hurt, it hurt a lot of people. It did. Yeah, man. But they, they came in and then we were given the conversion from our shares into MEMC, Sun Edison shares, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't it funny that MEMC changed its name to, to Sun, Edison. Sun Edison? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny and tragic all, all at once. <laughs> well, it's, it's better than, you know, the, M, the M, MEMC stands for Monsanto, so. Yeah, I mean, I remember the old days. I, I almost bought stock, uh, but I refused to buy Sun Edison or MEMC stock simply because I knew that MEMC stood for Monsanto Energy Management Company. And I, I was just like, I can't do it. I can't. I was so distraught the day that Sun Edison got bought by MEMC. Because uh, I loved you guys, and I, we had such a great relationship, and, and I just had a vehement, like, I mean, body-revolting reaction to MEMC. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think everybody did, but uh, yeah. what's interesting, though, is that Ahmad, the CEO, you know, we, we had known him from Cyprus and mm -hmm. uh, with the whole SunPower acquisition, and uh, we were competing, you know, with them, obviously, for PowerLight back in the BP days, so um, that's kind of where we met uh, mm -hmm. Dan Sugar and those guys, but it was... It was a, it was a, it was a really a palm branch that was extended mm -hmm. that I, I believe even uh, at least at that point they had money they had you know they still had cash on hand they had a lot of cash on hand back from the, when the silicon was so high mm -hmm. and, and they I were selling silicon at four hundred uh, right at four hundred dollars but the, the sad part about it is is that um, unfortunately uh, I don't think they had any compensation or any compensation they had any idea comprehension comprehension that the amount of burn through and cash they're going to go through solar companies are turns out solar is a cash burners big time and it can it can suck it up really quick yeah 
Well, so. you know, you've been a part of some historic growth. Thank you for these amazing stories. What what has you excited right now in the area of solar business model innovation? What do you see? Where's the what's the where's the future going? Before we jump into, uh, we got a game called Hot or Not. I want to plumb the depths here of your post Sun Edison experience. What do you see on the horizon? Uh, what do you believe is the next frontier? What's got you excited? I think what's got me excited, you know, on, on all fronts, um, th there are going to be some solutions in the f in the future for the small commercial space for financing that, that are outside of bank loans. And there, there are folks working on that right now. There's actually funds out there that are focusing still on the 150 kilowatt to 250. But I'm talking about we need solutions for the 50 kilowatt to the 150. Mm. You know, I did all those right. walls, I did all those staples and so forth. And um, that's one thing. And I think everything to do with batteries and, and mm -hmm. utilizing the battery technology that's coming in is, is, is most fascinating and to figuring out how to finance it. So there's companies right now that are focusing on what you refer to as non-bank solutions. So no bank loans, not your operating or, or standard operating or capital leases, but they're looking at other products to, for these 50 to 150 kW? Well, actually, they're, it's, uh, it's, it's essentially a PPA, mm -hmm. per se, a little, little higher rate. But remember, they never, they never bought power from multiple locations. It, it might be like a real estate firm that has mm. six locations, or it might even be just that um, you know, community church has been around for 30 years and you know, can put a you know, 80 kilowatt system on the roof but never right. could get a loan before because they were a nonprofit without audited records. Or, right. So. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've been able to get, you know, like some of the private schools, you know, from the alumni that had mm -hmm. some high net worth donors right. or, right. you know, kind of put up the fund and so forth for that. Sorry about the car alarm in the background. I don't. That's that's all right. It's just like your old days in, uh, in Sun Edison. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I think I think that's going to be interesting. And, and um, you know, when we get into the next segment, too, we can yeah. we can kind of talk about what we've for learned sure. for the developer side, too. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to the lessons learned section as well. So <clears throat> now we're going to play a game I call Hot or Not. I'll name a specific right. market or topic. You'll spend 30, 60 seconds, maybe a little longer if you got a story or two, on whether you think it's hot or not and why. We'll start where you left off, distributed storage. Well, I think it's it, it's getting hot. Mm -hmm. It's been hot for a couple of years because it's been hyped so much. Mm. But can you name very many locations that have actually been financed and put in, right? So that's Not the thing. Yet. There's lots of stuff going on. There's lots of companies pursuing it, lots of technology. So yeah. a, a lot of the folks now are kind of learning into that piece, and it's they're starting to come together now. It's hot. It's yeah, hot. where would you say, uh, if I were to drill down on that, where would you say distributed solar or distributed storage is sort of on the – on the growth curve, if you compared it with like a timeline for solar and PPA growth in the US. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, um, with the utilities that um, uh, service, you know, Pennsylvania and and uh, Illinois and so forth, you know, with the storage, you could actually, you know, do a, a system and have your storage be in Illinois or outside of Chicago, and then the solar system could be in Pennsylvania. I mean, there were ways to, to, to group them together, and I was just kind of working on those, you know, before the, the new year. Hmm. And um, it's kind of still a new process we're kind of working with. So we're looking at a world where we're not talking about co-located solar and storage. We're talking about disaggregated assets that serve one another. Right. 
Wow. That's you're and, the, uh, that's the first I've heard of that. Congratulations. You're, the, you're bringing some new, some fresh wave here. to <laughs> Well, I mean, the companies we're working with, obviously, under non-disclosure, but I mean, there's, yeah. I, that's why I'm not even mentioning the utility, but I'm just saying in sure. general, you know, um, different markets. Um, also, too, here in California, you know, you're seeing a lot of, you know, some of the, the incentives, which are very hard to acquire, mm-hmm. but then preparing for the, you know, the split you know, um, demand times or uh, trying to figure that out or what is the, the new, best time to deploy or when do you want to do it. Also, too, in uh, stabilizing the grid, you know, that's really, really big mm-hmm. in a lot of areas, you know, where, you know, for brownouts and so forth and making sure that gotcha. you have the, the piece. And, of course, with Tesla, it's very exciting, you know, the, the way yeah. to get their cars cheaper. You know, he's an amazing man. Let's go ahead and put these same batteries in houses and let's run the houses on batteries and you know that extra 30,000 batteries a year are gonna bring the price down to affordable and get these cars everywhere so I love it well yeah. so distributed storage is hot grid stabilization which I didn't have on my list but you mentioned is hot uh, electrification of the automobile industry let's talk about that hot or not Oh, it's it's. Think about it. And I, I obviously in California we have a little advantage because all the electric cars have a little emblem, uh, their lower fender that shows that they're emissions-free vehicle, which means they're all electric. Yeah. And they still, you, do you still get in the HOV lane with that in California? You, you do, and you oh. also get to go over the bridge for free. Yeah. So if anyone wonders when you go to California why you see a million Priuses on in the HOV lane, it's because back in the day. Or at least it right. used to be an HOV. I remember when I moved to California in 2005, everybody had a Prius who had the money to buy one because not because they love Prius, but because they could get in the commuter lane. <laughs> I, I I remember when I bought my first Prius. I I named it Birth Control. Um, it was, <laughs> you know, it's just, oh my God, they're so ugly, but you know, it's just. It was practical. 50 miles to a gallon, red out of sunroof. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But um, I'm so tall. Anyway, but um, I, I, I probably better state I don't know for sure if you can still do the the um, the HOV lane simply because they're so abundant now. But I think in the, I know, we know in the beginning it was, and especially the carpool lane had free, you know, fare going through the bridges, and now it's a reduced price. Mm-hmm. But um, right. but electrification, you know, and, and charging stations. Remember that was huge. Yeah. You know, four or five years ago, trying to figure out before the electric cars were around, people were like, dude, I'm going to the, I'm going into this and so forth. And, you know, a lot of the big sustainability departments with all our big retailers, you know, we were able to hook them up. You know, you go to a, a Walgreens now that has a parking lot. They always have EV charging, you know, yeah. staples would have them too. Did you guys throw those in as part of your contract just to try to get you know, it? Because like, it's so cute. easy. We, we did for a while. And because um, you get them for free, right? Like these guys install anywhere you ask them to. <laughs> yeah, but here's the funny part. What they learned was is that um, there was kind of a service come and shop here and plug in while you're here. Well, people weren't just plugging in while they were there. They were leaving their cars there and so forth. Overnight. And next thing you know, the, the grid bill on the store was up, you know, or they put another big thing that happened at the I don't know, Walgreens is an example. Those soda coolers were in front of all the checkouts. Mm-hmm. Suddenly those were drawing so much power, you know, and so the, the grid was being affected, you know, for different things. Yeah. So you have to really think about those pieces. So it's kind of got to be expensive for the offering of those. And I, I don't know how many programs are still around, but that was, that was big for a while. Yeah. 
What do you think about uh, utility scale solar these days? Hot or not? Let's let's say for the purpose of utility, let's call it over 20 megawatts. I, I was just going to say, I, it's funny, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting now, and um, at Sun Edison, you know, utility was considered 20 megawatts and above. Mm-hmm. Um, smaller companies, you know, some think it's five megawatts and above, something right. that's 10. Um, everybody that's coming in from foreign lands with, with the fund or money or whatever else, they want to pursue the utility business. And so if you go through, just look at Energy Acuity or any of these programs or any of the listings or projects, how many 100, 200, 300 megawatt plants are there in the U.S. or how many are they still building? There, there are a lot of them that are, you know, 70, 80, 60s, you know, that are all mm-hmm. throughout South Carolina. I, I, we're consulting with a company right now that has two 150s outside of El Paso. So they're, they're around Remember, when you're building and sourcing a 150-megawatt project, you have several million dollars worth of money that goes together in the beginning. Just in development, yeah. Just development. A guy to do the this, a guy to do that, you know, securing the land. Is the utility going to charge you a million dollars for the interconnection Yeah. per 10 megawatts? Are they going to charge you for, you know, permits? What's going to happen here? Is there even grid to carry that much power out of there right and it takes about two or three years so a lot of them want to come in and turn the business so that's where kind of the m&a business comes into play but it's still hot they're still doing them you think so so you think like the days of the of the mma or the uh the silverado power or the hecate energy you think the the day their days they're not numbered they still have quite a few years they're 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 all working on the bigger projects Mm -hmm. but the problem is, is that I think, and my estimation is, is that a lot of the utilities have also figured out that they should probably do them themselves. Hmm. Or, you know, you have your first solars out there that are actually doing their own development. And so that your developer that probably would be listening to this would probably, I would imagine, be in the 5 to 25, maybe a 50 from time to time. But the ones that make sense that are doable with maybe an 8 to 10 month a year turnaround time and where there's there's plentiful you know money to finance them. Yeah. Well, I have one here for utility with respect to whether or not a market or a concept is hot or not. How do you feel about the utilities relationship to DG? And let's call it DG solar, DG storage, however it is. My, my personal impression and opinion has always been that this whole DG solar business has just been a damn irritation to the utilities. Right. And, you know, with the renewable portfolio standard, they have not had the choice. It's like mm-hmm. stepchildren. You get them anyway. Yeah, whether, not much whether, love whether, then. Whether you like them or not. Yeah, not and, much love uh, between the utilities and the DG folks. Exactly. Yeah. And so in, in trying to, you know, have every roadblock put up in general, mm-hmm. you know, is difficult. But yeah. it's still happening. They're still building projects. They're still going in. They're still a viable business. There's still money yeah. available for those. Amazing. Well, hot or not, these large uh, Solar City, Vivint, Sun Edison, national installer style companies, the big finance entities and, and sort of a portfolio backed companies. Well, you know they're 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 hot. They're they're under review right now because you know 
you sign up a thousand contracts, you list a thousand contracts, and you have forty percent of them canceled, but you don't let investor know that forty percent of the contracts are canceled. So right now you have two of the big leaders being under SEC investigation for that. Mm-hmm. You have other ones that um, were on the block to be sold for lots of money based on the fact of their pull through and so forth that um, had no idea of profitability, even what they were making, or if they did or didn't make money. They had really poor control over that. Mm-hmm. So obviously residential solar is always going to happen. People are still going to do it. Mm-hmm. The pricing is coming down low enough now that you don't really need the big program. You need somebody local, some local representation. Yeah. So what I see a lot of my consulting, I see a lot of companies that are doing two and 300 systems a year, but they work with a larger entity, you know, Westco, a Solagent, a, uh-huh. you know, um, Sunrun, you know, where they're taken kind of care of hmm. by their products from them. The kits are kind of delivered, right. kind of like the old models that we used to do in distribution. Right. But, so we're seeing a return. We're seeing a return then to the, I'll call it mom and pop, but to the small to medium sized enterprise that just focuses on their niche or maybe their corner of the world. The, the, the bigger players all have their networks that carry their logos on their trucks and everything else, but they're probably independent mm-hmm. selling, you know, like the solar pro with sun power, those types of things, mm-hmm. usually independent folks. Yeah. Uh, you see, you know, they, they work through a lot of their own. Um, when I was still with um, Sun Edison and, and kind of going in, cause you know, I had, the Home Depot program mm-hmm. for BP and so forth had a lot of experience in, in residential. Um, a lot of the big players want their logo. They want their name in the home. Yeah. You know, it's Xfinity as an example. They've got your TV. They've got your home security system now. They've got your telephone. Yeah. And now they've got your solar. And yeah. by the way, we'll all put it together in a little box on the wall and when you're at work you can get on your iPhone and you can turn your lights off or you can do that I mean it's kind of always kind of been there that's interesting question how far how far away are we from an Xfinity buying a solar company rolling up a Vivint or something like that you know what I I I can't really answer that because I because you're under some non-disclosures I'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) well I I I do see I was I one of the big players you mentioned I'm I've been a non-disclosure for you know helping them trying to go full saddle now with trying to build a CNI division, mm-hmm. you know, so it's kind of interesting that they feel like to be more value, they need to have the whole food chain. Yeah. Yeah. Under. Interesting. Interesting. Well, last, last part of uh, hot or not, I'll ask one more question. How about SaaS software as a service startups in the clean tech? <laughs> well, you know, obviously software as a service has, um, been one of the key components and all the big players for a long, long time. Um, it's always going to be there. And, and I, as, as far as in clean tech, I, I can't answer that because I don't really have a good background yeah. on that one. But um, interesting. I, I, I can't answer that. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Well, that's, that's interesting. I love playing that game because it's always good to hear what people's uh, uh, viewpoints are on different elements that in, some, in their own way affect the solar industry and, the, and its direction. But uh, now we'll move on to a section uh, I call Lessons Learned. If you could start Sun Edison over again today, 2016, 
what one thing or suite of things would you do differently? And then uh, on the heels of that, I'd love to know what did growing Sun Edison teach you about how, how businesses work? Well, I, I think that um, the, the, biggest, the biggest fear of Sun Edison after merger, mm-hmm. what made it so successful in the beginning is it wasn't tied to a module line. It wasn't tied to any particular lender. It wasn't tied to any religious organization. It wasn't tied to anything besides low-cost energy, bright people, deployment, volume, you know, just like the Costco mentality, pile it high, stack it wide, get it out there, and more volume. Solar agnostic, remember that we talked about it earlier, um, financing multiple partners, your own capital, yeah. being able to do it. So if I were ever to, you know, you have to remember though, the Sun Edison time in the beginning, unfortunately, there was no other animal like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had power light that had been acquired by Sun Power, but now suddenly it's their products being pushed down, Yeah. right? At a very high cost and so forth. So you'd lose your ability. So if I started Sun Edison again, I would keep origination. I would not buy cranes. I would not put a construction division together. Wow. I would do origination. I would have amazing relationships with manufacturers mm-hmm. because of volume and strategic deals and negotiation. I would have products with you know, the first rights to market like we did at BP when we did the whole balance. You know, BP Solar was the largest seller of balance of systems in the world based on the program we put together that I did on having the money to buy in and so forth and do it. So Sun Edison, do it over again, no construction, no affiliation to any particular source or entity. Right. Have access to capital that's your own or you have control of. Yeah, big one. And then you have a place to hold your systems and go fight when, instead of having 12,000 employees, 44 offices, and the most important thing at the end is I would pay the bills on time. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in, in that tremendous growth and where the company spiraled at the end when all those acquisitions and so forth was amassing huge debt. Yeah. And that that was their, their final ringer. And, but, and debt at the hold co, right? Debt at the top. Not, well, remember the yield co, the, the, yeah, the, the debt that was that was amassed in there was – Primarily buying and the debt, you know, like buying a Vivint for $2 billion or whatever it was, you know, buying companies that primarily were, you know, let's face it, they were in the throes of bankruptcy themselves. But the yield codes were there to take large volumes of projects, you know, that all met the criteria and they would take them in. What happened, the demise, the demise at the end was when the market readjusted and all those projects were purchased with the assumption of the cost of money being one thing. Mm. When the readjustment came in and that was a few points higher, then suddenly all those projects were underwater and they couldn't be built. And that was kind of the hard part. You need to have that volume come in there. You need to complete the things. And that's, that's what happened. Wow. Wow. So So that's it. No construction company, no (laughs) module company. 
Yeah, and t- Sun Edison, uh, what I heard you say, Sun Edison taught you was pay your bills on time. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that um, Ahmad promised that when um, you know, MNC was notorious for never paying their bills. Wow. And uh, he promised us that he would do that. But that there's that was, that was the most frustrating part. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, what were some, you know, you've had, you've been an incredible mentor to lots of folks in the industry, myself included. But surely you've had some mentors. I mean, gosh, you worked for icons in the industry. What would you say are some key lessons or takeaways from some of the most important mentors in your career? Well, I think some of the biggest takeaways were um, be nimble, be willing to roll your sleeves up, Hmm. get in there. You know, where I kind of learned a long time ago that um, being a relationship ambassador really – you know, mm-hmm. understanding you got you have a fiduciary responsibility right. for the company to ensure the profitability and, and do that. But you also have to be a liaison for your customer mm-hmm. and they have to trust you and don't lie to them. It's better to deliver bad news and get it out of the way than it is to lie about it and lie about it, let it fester and compound and then you lose the customer. Customer acquisition is more expensive than customer retention. Mm. And that's where you want to keep them. And it, I guess another another thing I learned is that uh, for especially the developers listening, uh, the way the market's working right now, if you've got a good project or a nice project, find out from your your investors that have co-development arms that are seriously there they will help co-originate. Find out where they think the next hotspot is or where they're willing. Because with some companies I consult for, you know, they have money available, but they will only deploy it in New Jersey, California, right. where they currently have systems because of the O&M. Yeah. You know, it can't be more than 50 miles away from another one, or mm-hmm. it has to be in this market. They don't want to put one in Nebraska because what are you going to fly people in if the system goes down? So yeah. understanding where the markets are good or where they'll work with it, and then find out what they will do to support you in it. Wow. Everybody's learning now the fact that co-development, you need some skin in the game, and they have money available to help you. Right. That's brilliant. What do you see entrepreneurs and developers consistently doing that they should stop doing? Oh, interesting. Wow. I guess said a different (laughs) way while you think about it, I'll say it a different way. What are some common pitfalls or time wasters? You know, you've built some amazing teams you see people still doing things that you've advised them to avoid uh, over and over again. What are the what are the common areas where people are just like they would they prefer to run into the wall as opposed to take your advice and run around it? Well, I think um, you, obviously you had the early adopters are very passionate and so forth. There still are those folks that um, you know a lot of the millennials that have a lot of money now that have have come in, especially in the tech area. Mm-hmm. Uh, sustainability and making the the world a better place every day is is what they they all believe in and so forth. So with these entrepreneurs, it's very difficult to kind of explain the business side of it and and just what I'm saying, you know, where they want to invest in things and they have their ideas and what they're doing and letting them know that you know we've done this before, it didn't work. Here are the reasons why it didn't work. You know, just kind of convince them and use your your history. Give them examples of, you know, you're by an airport. They 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 jettison fuel all the time. 
your modules have to be cleaned twice as much. Right. You know, there's very low grid rate here. You want to invest, let's put it in the high desert in Southern California where land is very cheap. You know, you, you want these to also be you know, profitability centers or profit centers. Yeah. It doesn't really answer your question because no, every, think... every case is different, but it's like everybody has an idea. They have a lot of money. They're swinging it around. But in the bottom, of the, at the end of the day, and I can, I can give you a perfect example. In the movie stars, BP Solar, we had this Hollywood program we did that every movie star that would put a list celebrity that would put a system on their house, then BP would donate the equal watts to the low-income families in, in L.A. Hmm. And so, you know, they would, they would have you know, all these ideas and, and want to help and support and whatever else, and they would kind of place it. But the, the reality was is that, you know, they were going to have to pay for it. You can't, you can't exchange celebrity all the time for proven stuff. What I'm getting at is the fact that, so they would love it. And what I'm pointing out now is then we get to the business side of it. Their managers, their CFOs, the ones that run their production companies would never spend the money because it just isn't as cost effective or the returns on it. So with the entrepreneurs is to help them understand your returns on this investment are not going to be the same as investing in this particular tech company. This may be low risk or no risk at all, but your return is going to be like putting it in a CD. <laughs> it's going to be much less than a high-risk venture. Yeah. And that's kind of the advice to the entrepreneur. Uh, I love it. Well, let's talk about uh, you know the your your legacy, and we can talk a bit about how if you want to go take that a different direction. But I always ask, what's on your nightstand? And by that, I mean, what book are you reading now? And also, what book is the book that you've given away the most and why? Oh, interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I think the one that sits out most in my mind was back in the days of the operational excellence, customer intimate models and those types of mm -hmm. things. And and the books associated with that. And then I got turned on to Dale Carnegie. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I would say that not not just in general books, but a lot of the educational pieces and so forth where you know, modeling the customer's needs and so forth, but how to how to do that. And so I, I don't really, I'm not a voracious reader. I'm a, a real visual person and yeah. involved and so forth. But some of the things that stick out most in my mind were any any course or anything that had to do with customer relationships and maintaining relationships and how to really mold and keep them loyal, you know, and so... Um, do, I get to, to try to think of a, a half dozen titles of books we've read over the years on that, but mm. it's just. Is there a Carnegie book in particular that stands out to you? How to Win Friends is obviously his most. Uh, th that seminal. that would probably be, yeah. Mm -hmm. I would I'd imagine. What I usually do, uh, th it's funny. I have guests who will literally like they'll turn around to their bookshelf and they'll look and and see what they have, or they'll <laughs> open up their they'll open up their Kindle library on their on their computer. But likewise, uh, there are folks who like you have just say, you know what. I've read a ton of books. Titles don't stand out anymore, but the lessons do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where I'm kind of, you know, like relationships. And I, I can remember the, the book that was all about difficult conversations, mm -hmm. you know, having difficult conversations with people and how to, you know, sit down with an employee or a customer and deliver the bad news and how to, 
you know, turn it around into a positive thing. And I can't even remember the name of the book, but it was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I took that class at Princeton and I remember just exactly, you know, the, the, the times and, and the, the stuff, you know, the other mar- marketing books. I like to read a lot about, yeah. yeah, I went to the marketing Academy at, at Kellogg by, you know, BP at the BP marketing Academy. Right. And, you know, the case studies, I remember the most, the case study of like John Deere tractor and new Holland and some of these companies and the brands and so forth really stuck out in my mind and, and, um, you know, switching over to you know, the branding and keeping that interesting. True. True. Yeah. So what, uh, what one thing do you consistently do in your life that yields the greatest impact or results for you? Consistency on the key is being, um, people would say, well, I, I try and be everybody's best friend, but in, in nurturing relationships consistently, you know, when I walk away, you know, yeah, I tell great stories. It's fun things, but what I, what I train and teach people in, in sales training and especially when I go into a new company, is everything needs a story. Mm. People enjoy stories. People love to be entertained. They yeah. love a story. So when you walk in and you hear a story, and like when you develop this podcast, and if I were to work with you on that, I would sit down with you and I would learn what took you and what was the drive and so forth. And we would mold yeah. that, we'd rehearse it, and then we'd put it into a a piece that we would then go out and we would sell this. And this would be the story we tell people. We're in an elevator. We're at a lunch or whatever with a customer. Right. You start out and tell your history and the story of how you got there and why you're so successful now as a result of the work that was done in the past. And this is why you would really want to work with us is because yeah. we've already figured this out. So you like have – yeah, I, I love it. So your – the consistency for you is – is teasing out the story and helping those around you understand how to craft the narrative, how to craft that narrative. You've got to have a story that, you know, and even with this, 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 one of these big companies I just worked with is like, I make the principals, I make the owners sit down and tell me their story. Yeah. Every, every time, every time I see them, I need them to tell me the story, how, they started the company. Are you checking for consistency there or is it to remind you or, or mostly to, to get them to return back to it? Not to get them to return back to it, but guess what? Every time the story is told, they remember another little detail mm-hmm. that I can improve the story. When you're really putting together a conclusive story on the history of something, mm-hmm. every time a founder tells a story or you bring them on the road with you and you have them do an introduction, you say, hey, so-and-so, would you mind telling this potential customer how you started the company and right. where you were and how it happened. And you just memorize those pieces yeah. and then you reenact it in their place and proxy for them when you're out and it becomes believable Yeah, and people want to do that. Yeah. That's so, that's so I'm glad you brought that up. That's been one of the keys for me as well in sales is, uh, I try early on as often as possible to get someone who's been telling the company story or who's been, a part of the company sort of you know, the historical concept to to lead the conversation the, you know, the first number of times that I go out with customers so that I can be good, become better at emulating that conversation because it's not my story, right? And in many cases, it's not right, your story. Right. But I know from experience that you became, a, a, as you said, a relationship ambassador. You became a brand ambassador for Sun Edison in a way that allowed you in a board meeting to communicate and convey the ethos of Jigger Shaw in a way that sometimes even Jigger couldn't do. 
Right. And I think too, when you when you when you give the story as a person that made the story up, mm. as Jigger telling his story, you you start to nip and cut it. Because mm-hmm. you because right? you think, oh, they're not interested in this, or <laughs> well, right. you've told you've told us so many times, mm. whatever. But when you sit there and listen to it, and you're the person that's paid to spread that story, everybody wants to join a winning team, yeah. right? Yeah. So. You tell the story of the winning team and how you became winning. Or if you're not quite winning yet, you tell the story how it came together and how you're going to win and build people's belief in that and they follow along. Mm. Now, the stories of the company beginning, it's always the same. But, you know, the fun part is, is the playful stuff later when the drinks flow and then the stories get bigger yeah, and better and fun. Right. And everybody knows that there's a wink, a little here and there, whatever. It's fun. But that's when you build the relationships. So if you ever see me on the on the streets, if I represent a company, I'm always branded. Yeah. You you you've never seen me out of brand ever. No. I promise you that. And um, it's really difficult sometimes for the folks in the finance field. You know, it was hard for BP to let me wear polo shirts, but people like to have the story and have the brand and bring it out there. Right. So. Corey, where can people find you? Somebody wanted to interact with you. Is there an easy way for someone to reach out? Sure. Sure. Um, I have um, CRV Consulting, which actually stands for Creative Renewable Ventures, but that's also my initials. But um, just Corey, C-O-R-Y at CRVConsulting.com. Uh-huh. Send me an email. I'm happy to get back to you. Um, do you do the tweet? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I, um, I, don't, I don't Twitter as, as much yeah. um, as, well, as I, I should. Well, I'll let everyone I'll, – I'll connect. I'll link, to, I'll link in the show notes to your LinkedIn page. Obviously, we're gonna. Uh, I'll link as well to your email so folks can reach out, reach out to you. Well, what are you working on now? I know uh, you know uh, we don't have to talk about the whole uh, you know four plus years since then. Sure. But um, what are you? What's what's next? What you got? What's excited? What what I've primarily been doing now is uh, like industry intelligence and networking, mm-hmm. and a corporate strategy and development. I still work with the PPAs and leases, bringing you know funding to the projects, kind of a acquisition of projects for financiers, yeah. um, customer analysis and value creation. I work a lot with some of the big EPCs, you know, they're out selling their products or I sit down and I evaluate sales territories and who they're working with and I, their pitches and what they're doing, uh, market-based strategies, profitable growth. Um, I, I think too, um, introductions of developers and EPCs and end users to funding sources is probably the best approach, you know, like, this next week, I'm I'm working with the CEO on uh, the strategy of where to go now. You know, mm-hmm. they have a, a, a budding business and they're an EPC doing several hundred million dollars a year in non-solar work, and they do a, a thriving solar business. But you know, where do we go next? Let's figure this out. Dude. Right. It's just kind of the questions you've been asking, and Amazing. you know, and then I'll go out and shake the trees and rattle around. I love it. Well, let's end today with what I call the bold prediction. And we've perhaps had a few of those already on the show, but Corey, if you look into your crystal ball, well, one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in that crystal ball? So the crystal ball is the fact that we will survive post ITC. Mm -hmm. I think that crystal ball is still there because I'm seeing the cost of product come down so much now 
and I've seen the installation costs being really brought down. I don't see it hiccuping. Yeah. I think the crystal ball says, I think we're still in the right business. Yeah. I still think it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. I still believe that, um, regardless of whatever Washington says right now, whatever the group that's in charge says right now, it's still in the state and local levels. You know, California's already in, put their initiatives in place, regardless whether without them, we'll still do it. Yeah. So I still, I still think my crystal ball says that we're still in the right business. That's great. I love it. I love it. Corey, it's been an amazing honor, pleasure. It's great to reconnect again, my friend. I'd love to have you back again on Suncast sometime. Maybe we'll get all the solar cowboys together. Absolutely. That'd be a lot of fun. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.